MacCast, Sunday, February 26th, 2023. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple news, hints, tips, tricks, and all the going-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a great day. Hope things are going very, very well for you. Things are pretty good around here. It's been a little bit cold. We had another blizzard. Still adapting to the weather out here in the Midwest, but still loving it. I absolutely love it here and having a great time. Looking over the show notes, uh, we have a number of things to get into in this episode. We're going to be talking about a lot about what's next, I guess, for Apple and what might be happening. We've got a little Apple TV Plus news sprinkled in there and actually an opportunity for one of you, maybe if you are super creative and are interested in creating television. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but we're going to get into iPhones and Macs and, oh, AR headsets, VR headsets, I guess. Yeah, all that stuff we've been talking about for a while. I don't think that's surprising to anyone. Then we have a little bit of follow-up on our UPS discussion, uninterruptible power supplies. We talked about that on the last episode of the MacCast. We have a security question and some details to get into this week. And we're going to talk about Safari taking something away from you. Yeah, I'll get into what that is and then uh, try to help a listener out or explain what's going on with in-store pickup of a new Mac. Yeah, intriguing, right? So we'll get into all of that in this episode. Lots of good stuff. So I think we should just dive right into things and not really waste any time. So let's talk about iPhone 15. What's coming with iPhone 15? We have a lot of rumors this week, all sort of pointing in similar directions, I guess. We had a reiteration of the rumors that the next generation of the iPhone, the one coming out this year, will have smaller bezels, this time from Twitter leaker Shrimp Apple Pro. Uh, Looks like maybe only thinner bezels on the iPhone 15 Pro models, or at least that's all he mentioned, although some other rumors seem to point to it maybe showing up on all devices this year. Another thing in his leak that was a little bit interesting and also confirmed by another rumor this week is that the edges of both the front glass um, where it meets the frame and also the frame on the back could have a slight curve to them. So the last couple years of design, we've had that flat glass and flat back moving back to that curved edge. Although to me, it looks like it's going to be a little less extreme than we've seen in the back in the past. So a pretty subtle edge. Another thing that we're hearing that'll be good news for those of you who are interested in the entry level models of the iPhone. So the iPhone and the iPhone the iPhone 15 and the iPhone 15 Plus, it's sounding like they're going to bring Dynamic Island to all of this year's models. And then speaking of those smaller bezels, 9to5Mac believes that the smaller bezels could allow the 6.1-inch model of the iPhone to increase the size of its display up to 6.2 inches. And I think across the line, we're hearing rumors that we'll have more display 
and slightly smaller iPhones just by a little bit because of those thinner bezels. So unfortunately, that likely means your old cases aren't going to work on your new phones. But it seems like it's been that way for the last couple of years as well. We also saw some CAD leaks this week from a leaker known as Ice Universe. These came courtesy of Mac Rumors, and those CAD images showed an iPhone 15 Max model that was slightly thicker, roughly about 5% thicker than the current iPhone 14 Max. And what's interesting about that, I think, besides the fact that it could have larger battery is that it also seems like that means that the camera bump on this year's iPhone 15 Max models might be a little less pronounced. So you have a little less camera bump because the uh, the iPhone itself is moving up into that space. And then a different Twitter leaker, Unknowns21, that's with a Z, Unknowns with a Z21, also posted what Mac Rumors says is a leaked image of an iPhone 15 Pro with a USB-C port. Uh, that one's not too shocking, as it has been expected that Apple is going to be moving to USB-C soon, and many of us, myself included, have kind of thought this year would be the year. So USB-C coming to the iPhone, I think, is probably inevitable. But what is even cooler about this image, if it turns out to be true, is it does seem to show those curved edges on the front and the front glass and the back casing. And uh, I don't remember if we talked about this on previous episodes, but it's also rumored this year that the casing on the iPhone 15 Pro might move from aluminum to titanium. And so the color in this leaked image seems to show a what looks like a titanium-colored metal, which would be really cool. TrendForce also claims that Apple is planning improvements in the amount and speed of RAM in the iPhone 15 models this year. For the Pro, they say it could get a bump from the 6 gigabytes of RAM that we have in the iPhone 14 Pros up to 8 gigabytes. And then on the non-Pro models, they would likely remain at 6 gigabytes, but could potentially get faster LPDDR5 RAM. So a little bump and improvements to the RAM in this year's iPhone models. And then we have Ming-Chi Kuo chiming in on the iPhone 15 Pro models this year. And you may notice this trend. It seems like i15 Pro is what all the rumors are about right now. So seeming like many of the new features, a lot of the new features are going to be slated for the Pro edition. It remains to be seen, and it's kind of unclear what's going to kind of trickle down to the non-Pro models. But we had heard this rumor over the past, you know, year or so that Apple's really going to be focusing on trying to create that differentiation and trying to get people to jump up to the pro models. So this could be another example of that. Quo saying that the pro models are going to get an improved LiDAR sensor from Sony that could use less power, meaning better battery life and also offer improved performance. And then when it comes to colors, you know, each year Apple's kind of doing that pro color And uh, this year's Pro model, it's rumored, could be a deep red, almost a magenta color. They're calling it dark sienna. And uh, that on the iPhone models, Apple has been testing a couple colors. I don't think it's set in stone yet, but it could be a bright blue, picton blue, or a bright pink telemagenta. And uh, I, looking at these images or leaked colors, to me, it seems like they're going for the printer, the printing 
crowd, those of us who like CMYK, because it's really just a bright magenta pink and a cyan. Although uh, the report I was reading kind of alluded that all of these colors are proving to be a little bit tricky for Apple to apply to the metals. But a deep, dark red iPhone, that would be kind of classy, I think. It could look really, really nice on those pro models. And again, I'm a fan of CMYK, so cyan and pink, bring it on. As bright as they can get them, I think that would be really, really cool. Um, it's also believed that the iPhone 15 Pro chip this year will be an A17 Bionic. I think we talked on a past episode that, again, the Pro models might be the only models to get an A17, and the iPhone models could go with an updated A16. Uh, and that the A17 this year in the Pros would be the first to use TSMC's 3 nanometer process. Uh, what's more interesting about the TSMC rumors is that a lot of reports coming out saying that, and I think I first saw this over on Mac Rumors, that 100% of TSMC's 3 nanometer production capacity, because they just brought that on- online this year, is going to be used up by Apple. And that gets interesting because that means other manufacturers won't have access to that for maybe an entire year or longer. Who knows? But Apple locking up that that manufacturing capability, that's kind of a big win for Apple and kind of a kind of a big deal. And then I think wrapping things up on the iPhone front related to iPhone production, it sounds like Apple might be facing some challenges in moving at least some of their iPhone parts production over to India from China. The Financial Times reported that a recent run of iPhone casings from an Indian production facility only yielded about 50% of the parts that met Apple's high quality standards and would be able to be sent to assembly, uh, say, at a factory like Foxconn. Apple's goal with their current Chinese manufacturers, according to the report, is zero. They want 100% (laughs) to go. And this just sort of illustrates that moving manufacturing takes a lot more than just simply switching the country where you're producing the products. They have to kind of bring their processes up, especially to meet Apple's very, very high quality standards. And it sounds like estimates right now are that it could take about three years for manufacturing in countries outside of China to be able to adapt to meet those high standards from Apple. Now, luckily, it seems like Apple's not going to be that delusional about how long it might take. Uh, Reports right now are that they hope to get about 25% of production moved to India by 2025, so in a couple years, and then get to about 50% production by 2028. So I think they have a good ramp up time, but it is definitely going to take a while to get out of, uh, you know, full manufacturing out of China for Apple. Moving on to Max, we continue to hear rumors that there is a 15 inch version of the M2 MacBook Air on the way. We've been hearing about this for a while, and it's looking like this is definitely going to be the year. The question is, when is Apple going to release that model? This time around, Mac Rumors is telling us that DigiTimes sees it arriving sometime in the second quarter of this year. That means it could be on a time frame that would line it up with Worldwide Developer Conference, and Apple could announce it there. You might remember that they announced the 13-inch M2 there last year, so that seems like good timing. Display analyst Ross Young also said this week that uh, panel production of the 15-inch MacBook 
Pro uh, display did seem to get into production starting this month. So that would line up you know, with the timing of everything. So M2 15-inch MacBook Air, very, very cool. Uh, there's a little bit of debate, but it still seems like this will be an a model that's in addition to the 13-inch MacBook Pro or MacBook Air, excuse me. Some folks had thought that maybe Apple could replace the 13-inch, but it seems like it'll just be an addition to the Air lineup, which be which could be really, really nice. And then while we're on the discussion of Macs, I want to talk a little bit about the M-Series Mac Pro. We know that's still in the works, but there's a lot of debate about what that's going to look like and some of the challenges that Apple has been having. It's already been rumored that they may have dropped the idea for an M2 Ultra version of the processor, um, but uh, that remains to be seen. The other thing that's in question is how Apple will achieve a modular Mac, the ability to upgrade things like GPU and RAM and all those sorts of things with the Apple Silicon philosophy of having a system on a chip, having all of that stuff be be integrated. And 9to5Mac has noticed some interesting things in uh, the recent in the recent release of iOS 16.4, the uh, developer beta. They found a new what they're calling compute code device class in references in Xcode 16.4 beta. And what it looks like is that these, this is a brand new class of device that we haven't seen from Apple. Uh, compute modules 13,1 and 13,3. So there's actually two of them and they run iOS. And so nine to five has been kind of speculating on what this might be. It could be something related to the headset. It could be a number of things, but one of their hopes, and I I hope this one turns out to be true, is that it could be the key to expandable components for something like a Mac Pro in the age of Apple Silicon. So it could be a way to bring, uh, you know, dedicated GPU upgrades or say an M3 Ultra compute module that you could swap out in your Mac Pro and bring expandability and upgradability in the era of Apple Silicon. And I really like their thinking on this. Um, this is something I speculated on a long, long time ago with a friend of mine that, you know, if you could just have sort of stacked hardware components or hardware components that you could sort of swap together and build up a computer. So you would have a CPU module and a GPU module and uh, IO port modules. And if you needed more, you could just simply swap out one component for another. I don't know if that's the thinking here or if that's what we're looking at, but it's interesting to speculate about. And it would be a great modular computer concept and allow you to, hey, I, you know, I like my IO configuration. I'm good with that. You know, US uh, Thunderbolt 4, I've got enough ports in there. I've got all the USB stuff I need. You know, the power supply could be in a separate component. And then you're like, ah, and I'm even happy with my CPU, for example. I just want to swap out the GPU module and you could just get a new one and sort of drop that in and swap it out. So if that's how they achieve modularity, I think that could be a, a very interesting way to go. And it seems like there might be some indications of that in uh, in those developer betas. So we'll have to wait and see, but we are expecting some sort of Mac Pro announcement I'm going to guess, and this is purely speculation on my part, it's going to be more toward the latter part of this year, probably toward the end of this year, maybe in that fall time frame. But again, we'll have to wait and see. 
So do you think you have what it takes to be the next director of an Apple TV Plus series? This is interesting this week. Apple has announced a Apple Studio Directors program on their website. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. But they're basically through the the end of the month here, through March 1st, taking applicants via their website for, quote, the Directors Studio program. Apple says it's an inclusive initiative focused on expanding opportunities for mid-career directors across the U.S., Our goal is to identify innovative and diverse visionaries and give them a front row seat to Apple Studios productions and opportunities to network. Successful participants will be positioned to direct content for Apple TV+. So alluding that you could get an Apple TV Plus series. This is a six-month program. They're going to offer offer master classes. And according to the webpage, they're going to be choosing three candidates to participate in this program. So if you think you, you want to go for it, it's up and available on Apple's site. You just have to answer a number of questions and drop a resume and, and a number of different things. But hey, if you get in, you could be directing the next Apple TV Plus series. Now, one thing I wonder is if when you do that, they'll give you a Ridley Scott budget for your first show. Yeah, probably not, considering the fact that we had a report this week that says Scott got $50 million just for the pilot episode of his new Apple TV Plus show. That is crazy when you consider back in the day he was making entire films for what? Double that, 100, 103,000, I think, was the estimated budget for Gladiator. Yeah, that is nuts. So the new series is a crime drama called Sinking Spring, and it's based on the Dennis Tafoya book, Dope Thief. So that is coming. They're spending a lot of money, big budget money on episodes. So you'd hope that would translate into a really good show. I don't think there's any guarantees, but yeah, Apple definitely not afraid to spend some money on some content, that's for sure. And then one little t- other tidbit sort of in the Apple Entertainment, Apple TV Plus news arena, although I don't know this is that, that this is really going anywhere or that surprising, is there's a CNBC report this week that says Apple and Amazon are both very interested in bidding on Uh, for the rights for at least some NBA streaming content uh, in the future. That's because Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery right now own the NBA rights at least until the end of the 2024-2025 season. So, I mean, it's one thing you can jump in and say, hey, we want the rights if if you're ever interested, but it's a ways off. But And again, I don't think it's too surprising because we know Apple's been trying to break into sports. They've got the MLS now. Uh, They did the deal with... um, with MLB and we know they were hoping for NFL, although that didn't really work out for them as we know. So yeah, they continue to pursue sports content, but if you're hoping for NBA on uh, Apple TV plus anytime soon, you're going to be waiting a little while. And then finally in the news for this week, uh, as you might imagine, we have additional AR VR headset news Although not so great because Bloomberg's Mark Gurman says that Apple has delayed the release of the AR VR headset by at least two months. Speculation was that Apple wanted to do an event in April, uh, but they've had some issues with the software. Specifically, it sounds like around the controls, which you may remember from previous episodes, Apple is going to do not 
hand controllers or any kind of physical devices. They want to just have hand-eye controls that rely on the vision system of the headset. And so that's giving Apple some problems. Specifically, German noted that the air typing feature that I think we talked about in the last episode is finicky. So there was this idea that you could have this virtual keyboard that you would type on, um, but it sounds like uh, you still have the ability to pair an iPhone and use the on-screen keyboard for text input. So that might be the way to go when they first launch it they're going to have to kind of dial in that new air typing feature uh, german also said later in a newsletter uh, that the headset setup won't require an iphone it sounds like you'll be able to download and sync up your accounts and stuff directly from icloud that's a little bit of a change from previous rumors and that you will still have the option to transfer data directly from an iPhone or iPad to the headset. So it sounds like it's going to have a very uh, iPhone-like setup. And um, it's now believed that because of the delay, Apple could try to announce the headset at Worldwide Developer Conference. I think they would almost have to, because I would think they'd want to start giving developers access to uh, features for developing software for the headset. But German says no guarantees. They could still delay Further, he is pretty confident, it sounds like, that we will see the headset before the end of the year. But right now, it's looking like Worldwide Developer Conferences is kind of the expected time frame for a possible announcement with a release to follow. I would imagine it would be later, maybe again in the fall or at least late summer when we actually see the product or can buy it. And <laughs> oddly, or not so oddly, even before the announcement happens, Mac Rumors says that Nikkei Asia has a report that Foxconn is already working on a second generation version of the headset for Apple. Supposedly, this one's going to be more affordable. And you can't see me doing this, but huge air quotes on this one because the First generation is rumored to be at least probably $3,000 US, maybe even up to $5,000 US. So more affordable, they're saying, is in the price range of a high-end Mac. So I'm thinking that's at least, what, two grand? Originally, we had been hearing they were trying to target maybe 1500 bucks, somewhere in the price range of a, of a high-end iPhone, but sounding like they might not even get there for the quote-unquote more affordable model. Ming-Chi Kuo does think when Apple has a more affordable version, there will be two of them. You'll have the high-end version in a, a second generation and then a low-end version. They seem to support the theory that Foxconn will be manufacturing the lower-cost model. Kuo says that Luxshare and Pegatron will be collaborating to produce the higher-end devices in the future. As far as when the second gen comes out, it looks like it's going to be maybe a two-year window because Kuo is predicting they will be launched sometime in 2025. So if we get first-gen, high-end, expensive one in 2023, it sounds like they're going to take about two years uh, before they launch the next one. And that that seems to make sense to me for this kind of device. They're going to want to spend a couple years with it, kind of figuring things out. And then we'll see how uh, the next generations develop. But whatever happens, DigiTimes says that suppliers of AR, VR headset components are expecting a huge surge in demand, basically a big explosion of the AR headset market after Apple announces their product. Again, we've seen this happen over and over again, right? The iPhone comes out and it changes the landscape of um, 
you know, smartphones completely. I mean, we saw it before that with the with the iPod, right? You remember MP3 players before the iPod? Yeah, it was crazy. And the whole landscape changed and we got things like the Zune. And, uh, you know, again, headsets have been kind of how they are, mostly focused on VR and mostly focused on gaming the last couple of years. What Apple's going to bring out is likely going to change the whole landscape again, and we'll see a lot of manufacturers following. So component suppliers are expecting to gear up on all of those components moving into the next year. So exciting times. I, you know, I can't wait to see the next product from Apple. Hopefully the headset is the next big thing. I'm not convinced yet, but I've not been convinced in the past. I wasn't sure they were going to completely change the phone landscape and look what happened. So if anybody can pull it off, certainly it will be Apple. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank our show sponsor. Today's episode of the MacCast is brought to you by Simply Safe Home Security. Would you do everything it took to protect your family? Of course you would, and that's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. They make it easy to protect every inch of your home with advanced security tech powered by 24-7 professional monitoring. And here's why I recommend it. For me, it's how easy it is to get set up and started combined with the flexibility of the system. I was able to start with one of their systems that met my current needs at a really great price. Plus, setup was a breeze, and I love being able to monitor everything from the app. What's even better is as my needs grew, like when I recently moved to a new house, not only could I take the system with me, it was easy to add new sensors, cameras, and other components and bring all that safety and security to my new home. Simply Safe is designed with cutting-edge security technology and powered by 24/7 professional monitoring. In an emergency, Simply Safe's professional monitoring agents use Fast Protect technology to capture critical evidence and verify that a threat is real so you can get priority police dispatch. 24/7 professional monitoring service costs under a dollar a day, less than half the price of traditional home security systems. And you can lock and unlock your doors, access your cameras, and arm and disarm your system from anywhere. CNET named Simply Safe Editor's Choice. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com/maccast. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off your order with interactive monitoring. That's simplysafe.com slash maccast. There's no safe like Simply Safe. And a big thank you to Simply Safe for their support of the show. Last time on the MacCast, we got into a great conversation, I think, about uninterruptible power supplies, UPSs. I learned a lot as I kind of did research for the show because I hadn't really gotten into them too much. And I hope you did, too. Actually, it sounds like you did because I got a lot of great feedback from the community. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got some great feedback along with other tips about selecting a UPS like this one from Robert. Hi, Adam. Awesome info on UPS power systems. Two things I wanted to mention that may also be of interest. First, many of these systems have the ability to communicate with a computer over a USB or an older RS-232 serial port so they can indicate main power has been interrupted and give the computer time to shut itself down gracefully. So one thing to look out for is what type of interface is used, the type of cable, and whether special software is needed. Macs have built-in support for some UPS systems, 
Others may have third-party drivers or add-on applications that are needed to be used. Related to that, the biggest question and the one that caught me is how many UPSs you need. Often, rather than one large UPS, you want smaller UPSs to power a few different pieces of equipment. For example, if you're going to keep your internet running for a brief period of time, you'll need a UPS on your Wi-Fi router modem system and any other network equipment like Ethernet switches, etc. And those are probably located in a different location than where your computer is located. So oftentimes it may be better to buy several smaller UPSs than one large one. Finally, in that same regard, you may find that monitors and displays are very power hungry. So think carefully about whether you need the monitor powered or just the computer itself and let the computer shut down on its own. Hey, Robert, thank you. Those are some really great tips and some great bits of advice. And for sure, yeah, if you're going to be covering things like your network gear, you're going to want to get separate UPSs. And I think that's great advice about sort of really analyzing what uh, things you need to keep powered while you're having power interruptions. Yeah, I 100% agree. Monitors, maybe, maybe not, right? Because the idea is to shut down. I think also on the... um, Serial connection, the the USB connection that allows a system like your Mac to gracefully shut down automatically in the case of a power outage. I think a couple of you also mentioned that uh, some NAS systems might be able to have that as well. So you can plug your NAS directly into the UPS and use the software in it to uh, to power down. So lots of great uh, tips and tricks there. I appreciate everyone sending those in. And then also, uh, just as a validation on how this can really help you out, I did get an email from Don who made the case for getting multiple UPSs. He actually has three from a company I don't think I mentioned last time, CyberPower. They're another kind of big name in, uh, in UPSs. And he got two two different ones. One was a simulated sine wave. And if you don't know what that means, go back and listen to the previous episode of MacCast. We talked about pure sine wave versus simulated sine wave models, but he got a simulated sine wave version for his network gear. So just like Robert was recommending, and then two pure sine wave models for each of his Macs. He has two iMacs. And he said in a recent bad Buffalo storm over Christmas, They had over two dozen different outages of various lengths. And he said it was great because he had his network gear going and his Macs going uninterrupted the whole entire time. I think the longest sort of outage was maybe a couple hours. So the other advantage of getting some smaller units uh, and sort of dividing up what you're powering, right, is you could probably get more uh, usage out of a smaller battery unit. So that could be a way to go and could potentially even, I think, save you money and keep you up and running longer. So again, great tips from the community. If you have any additional ones to add, of course, send them along maccast at gmail.com. This week, I also received a security question via email from Rick, who found an article on Macworld. I'll link to that article in the show notes at maccast.com that mentioned a recent XProtect update. And you might be going, Adam, what's XProtect? Uh, we've talked about this way, way in the past, but we'll get into it here in a minute. But Rick noticed or found out in this article that there was a new version of XProtect, uh, 2166. And he went to check his own system and noticed the security update had not been, or the XProtect update has not been automatically applied. By default on your Mac, XProtect should be automatically applied 
Um, it's a little bit different system update. And again, we're going to kind of get into this, but you can check if you have the most up-to-date version of XProtect by going into uh, system information or opening up the system information application, I should say, under applications, utilities, system information. You can also generally get there by going to about this Mac on your computer. I think it changed a little bit with Mac OS Ventura, but typically about this Mac and then system information on Ventura, I think you have to go a couple levels deep. So it's probably just easier to go straight to utilities and open up system information. But once you have system information open, uh, choose the information tab over on the left. It'll be under the software section. And then you can either scroll all the way down to the bottom of the list if you have it sorted by name or just reverse sort by name because you're going to want to get down to the entries for XProtect plist config data. That's the file that's going to have the version number and you're going to look to make sure that one of those entries is version 2166. Uh, using this list, you could also sort by date overall, just another side tip, to see all of the software updates that have ever been applied to your system. And this includes third-party software updates and all that sort of thing. So another interesting little place where you can kind of keep track of what's going on on your computer. And what's interesting about that is I actually had one app listed that was updated back in 2020, and the name of it was all Chinese characters. So that concerned me as you might imagine a little bit i'm like what is this is this malware did i get something on my system way back when i used the translate feature on the mac so i selected the text right clicked and chose translate and it translated the chinese into the bear's paw so the mystery got a little bit deeper and uh, i ended up copying and googling that text and it turned out it was related to markdown and it was at that point i realized that this was the markdown app bear which i had used in the past and uh, had been updated so no malware luckily but it definitely allowed me to uncover something so that's kind of our little side tangent on xprotect but you can check which version of xprotect you have the latest should be 2166 i think that came out on the 24th and um if you don't see it there, chances are that you might have, like uh, Rick did, the auto security updates turned off. Some people, Rick included, don't like to have a lot of you know background updates running. I specifically turn off any system updates or app updates. I like to update them manually because I like to know when I'm updating something. But uh, for this one, you probably want to have it automated. In uh, macOS Ventura, you go into System Preferences under General and then into Software Update and you click the info icon next to automatic updates that'll bring up a little panel and then you're going to want to make sure install security response and system files is checked on i think on older versions um it's a little bit different how you access that um, but you should be able to find it in your software update uh, settings it's basically install security response and system files you want that turned on and that will make sure that you're updating um, just security patches and updates and things to your system and again i know some people don't like to auto update that stuff if you want to have more details on specifically what's being updated when you have that setting turned on i'll have a link to a support article in the show notes at maccast.com but some examples are uh, core services application configuration data so this is something that blocks incompatible apps from being launched on your mac there's the gatekeeper configuration data this is the stuff that helps keep apps from unidentified developers off your mac um, it'll also 
update system things like updated fonts, firmware updates for things like built-in trackpads, external trackpads, mice, keyboards, displays. So, you know, printers, all that sort of stuff can just get updated at a system level. It also updates information to help you automatically block incompatible kernel extensions. So as Apple updates the system, you won't have to wait to run a big system update to get these little nice enhancements that come along. Those can be pushed out through this um, system file and security response data, along with, of course, XProtect. So now we get to the point of, okay, Adam, what what is XProtect and why do I actually want it? So XProtect is Apple's built-in antivirus protection, and it provides signature-based detection and removal of malware. Again, if you want to know a lot more about this, I'll have a link to a sh- to a support article, an Apple support ar- article in the show notes at maccast.com for more details. But, you know, the XProtect plus config data, that thing we talked about that's at version, you know, 2166, that thing is the list that prevents known malware from being able to run on your system and actually future malware as well because XProtect is based on something called Yara or Yara rules. And these things define variables that have patterns that are found in samples of malware. So they'll take a a piece of malware, a sample of that, and they'll kind of get all these indicators that basically create this signature profile for it. And they'll put it into these Yara rules. And then your system can look for conditions that are in that sort of definition to see if any of them are met. And depending upon the rule, then they can successfully identify a piece of malware. And XProtect will automatically detect and block the execution of known malware, but also look for these patterns and can block, you know, unknown ones. And if it, if it finds one, it will add that to the list. And so when it checks for malware is when you first launch an app. So if a new app has been downloaded to your computer, say you accidentally click on something malicious, you download it, and then you try and launch it, it's going to scan that, it's going to check and make sure that there's not malware in there. It will also detect when an app has been changed in the file system and then run the to check again. And then also, and another reason why you want these auto updates turned on is when it downloads a new XProtect signatures, it's going to scan your system and look for any malware that could have found its way onto your system. And then if it finds a malicious app, it will alert you and give you the option to have the app removed from your system. And then in addition, if you happen to somehow get infected, so if all that fails and you get infected, XProtect can provide remediation and cleanup of your system, removing the infections um, and updated information. It will not reboot your Mac, so you'll probably have to do that on your own, but it can do cleanup and put your system back into the order it's supposed to be in. And then if it does detect a new piece of malware through that, you know, Yara definition, uh, what Apple will do is any developer ID associated with certificates on that application because to run things on your Mac, most of the time it has to be signed by a developer. They'll revoke the developer certificate. Um, Notarization will be revoked and um, for all files and that are associated with the app. So those things won't be able to work and XProtect signatures uh, will be uh, uploaded. They'll redefine if it's a new piece of malware, they'll update XProtect and that will be released as a future update. So you'll want to definitely keep this on. And uh, just for kind of full, so that's just one, XProtect is sort of just one part. It's the antivirus part of a lot of the protections Apple has built into the Mac over the years. 
Other ones include gatekeeper and this idea of notarization. Um, notarization is basically apps have to be, as you know, submitted by developers to Apple and they basically notarize it and that gets attached to the application so that when it's distributed for apps that don't come through the app store, uh, the system can check and make sure, hey, this app isn't been modified, it hasn't been tweaked, it's notarized, uh, we know who the developer is, and it's safe to run. And then if you download your apps from the App Store, it goes even further with Gatekeeper. But the app can be blocked by Gatekeeper if you know anything smells not correct about that app because of this notarization process. And then there is a security setting uh, that you can check to allow applications downloaded from. Um, typically, it's set to, I think, just App Store. Um, but if you're like me, you run apps that don't just come through the App Store. So you might have it set to App Store and Identified Developers. Identified Developers means ones that are notarizing their applications. And you can bypass um to launch apps that are not notarized uh by right clicking an app that you've downloaded or installed and choosing open that will bypass uh the ability so if you've ever tried to open an app from an unidentified developer i think typically it will notify you hey this is from an unidentified developer it won't let you launch that app if you need to bypass it you would right click the app instead of just double clicking to open it and actually choose open from the uh, contextual menu. Now, this is of course not advised unless you are absolutely sure about the security of that unnotarized app that you're launching. So most people shouldn't do this. It should be only for advanced users, really. Um, everybody else, use the apps that are notarized, come through the app store, rely on Gatekeeper and, notice, and, and the notarization process, and that will definitely keep you much better protected. I'm not going to say absolutely protected, but much better protected uh, along with things like XProtect. So that's why you would care about XProtect, and that's why you want to uh, definitely be aware of it. Here's a little interesting email that I received from Martin this week who ran into a, quote, annoying problem with Safari stealing attention after a the after he upgraded to Mac OS Ventura. Now, I'm not uh, specifically convinced this is Mac OS Ventura only related, but it definitely is a bug. Martin pointed me to a Mac Rumors forum thread, and I will link to this in the show notes at maccast.com, where there were a number of people that said they were experiencing this annoying thing. So basically what's going on is you have Safari up and running, you're working on other things, maybe you're you know working on a pages document, and suddenly Safari pops to the front, and there it is right in front your front window, and you did not click on anything, you did not do anything, basically taking focus away from what you're working on. Super, super annoying. Now, I personally had never experienced this, but I dug into that thread and did a little bit more research, and I found a number of people having this exact issue. And what I noticed from reading different forum threads and different posts over on Reddit and stuff like that in my own research is that there were a number of people that mentioned this issue specifically coming up if they had ESPN.com open in Safari in the background. So they'd go to ESPN.com, then they'd move on to, you know, probably to check some sports scores or something like that, move on to doing something else. But Safari was still sitting there with ESPN.com open and running in the background. So I thought, hmm, maybe there is something here. So I tested this. I, I went to ESPN.com. I left it running in the background on my Mac. 
And then sure enough, after several minutes, boom, Safari, front and center, right in the middle of what I was working on. And what appears to be happening to me is ESPN.com has an infinite scroll on their homepage, and it seems like there's something running on their uh, on their webpage that auto-refreshes the browser, and that seems to kick in and steal the window focus, bringing you back to Safari. Now, I'm a web developer, and I'm not 100% sure how they're doing this. I tried to recreate it with some JavaScript and some things that I knew, but you know, maybe somebody in our community can figure out exactly what's going on. But this is definitely happening, and to me, it feels like a bug in Safari because I tried this with other browsers, and it's only Safari WebKit that seems to suffer from this problem. I'm not convinced that it's only ESPN.com doing it, so you may have experienced this with other websites, but I think the key is here, it has to do with some websites that refresh content in a certain way when they're sitting there running in the background or you're just like on the page. So they're doing some kind of page refresh or some kind of content refresh. Looks like it's an Ajax refresh of some sort that kicks in and brings focus back to the browser. So definitely, Martin, not something that you're alone in. It's definitely a thing. Hopefully it's a bug and hopefully it's something that Apple is aware of and will address sometime soon. I guess you could, you know, we could all kind of log in and give them feedback at apple.com slash feedback and hopefully that'll speed things up. But hopefully I, I would assume they're aware of the bug and hopefully it'll be patched in a future update. And then the last thing that I have for you is an email that I received from Tim, who is in New Hampshire, and he wanted to get a new Mac Mini Pro M2 Pro system with a one terabyte SSD. Awesome machine, Tim. I'm really jealous. But he wanted to be able to pick it up in store, in the Apple store. So he wanted to order it online, have it shipped to an Apple store, and then go in to pick it up. A very common thing. I think I've done this myself when ordering products. Um, And normally you can do it. But what's interesting and what I want to talk about with you today is that Tim went online configured a system, went to go set up the, you know, ship to my local Apple store so I can go pick it up and noticed that that option wasn't available. He has three Apple stores near him, lucky guy. And uh, it turns out he couldn't pick it up at any store in New Hampshire. But then it got even weirder because he noticed if he would pick a store in a different state, an adjacent state, he could go pick it up over there. So he was a little curious about uh, what was going on there. And that's when he emailed me. I didn't know at the time which state he was in, so I kind of did some follow-up. And while I was doing that, he actually talked to Apple and his local Apple store and kind of discovered what was going on. So what's happening is apparently New Hampshire has no state sales tax, which is great. And that's why Tim wanted to order to a store in his state so that he would not get charged tax on his new Mac Mini. And uh, it turns out that was causing some problems, according to the people at his local Apple store for them, because what was happening, as you might imagine, is people in other states adjacent to New Hampshire were thinking, hey, you know, if I buy my machine, I have state sales tax, but if I just ship it over to New Hampshire and then drive over and pick it up, I don't have to pay state sales tax. And that was causing all kinds of headaches and hassle for the employees at the Apple store. I guess also a bunch of the neighboring states to New Hampshire weren't too happy about losing some tax revenue. So Apple just made the blanket decision, hey, we're not going to allow you to uh, 
to pick up in store. I guess you'd have to go there, but you know, in this case, unfortunately for Tim, he's getting a custom configuration. So option would be just to have it shipped directly to your house. And maybe that's not as convenient for you, Tim, because you might have to be there. You don't want to be there when they actually drop it off. Porch pirates are a thing these days. I, I wish it weren't the case, but yeah, that seems to be what's going on. So I'm bringing it up because maybe some of you have experienced this as well. Uh, because of how tax works. I know there's other states like Washington State, I don't think has, is it Washington State or or uh, Oregon? One of those two, I think Washington State doesn't have income tax and Oregon doesn't have sales tax. So could be a similar problem over in Oregon. But it all comes down to the way things work. And Tim was wondering, you know, why can't Apple work around this, which I think is a valid question. He said, why not simply charge the state sales tax based on the person's home address. I'm assuming billing address. And I think there may be legal issues with that potentially because of the way tax laws work, at least here in the U.S. Um, typically, sales tax is charged in most states based on the shipping address. I looked into this a little bit. Uh, it's what's called origin-based sales tax um, and, and and versus uh, destination, or excuse me, I'm getting that backwards. So it's destination-based sales tax versus origin-based sales tax. And the majority of states in the U.S. use a destination-based sales tax, meaning you're going to get charged tax from the state that you're actually shipping an item to or receiving an item in, whereas origin-based sales tax would be taxed on the person making the purchase. You pay sales tax based on your billing address. So 11 out of 50 states uh, are origin-based in the U.S. So you can see, you know, the majority are uh, destination-based. So Arizona, California, Illinois, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Virginia all do origin-based sales tax. Um, so I guess that's potentially another way around the tax if you're paying attention to, you know, where you get charged. I don't know. I'm not telling you to kind of bypass tax, but yeah, tax laws are weird. And unfortunately, Tim, it sounds like you got hit by a bad situation in terms of uh, Apple. But uh, again, the workaround, just have it shipped to your house. And I think you should still be able to avoid paying the sales tax. So good luck with that. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Before I leave you, I'd like to thank Cashfly for providing the bandwidth for the MacCast. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, please send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. Com. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast. Find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.